0: We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, if you have not made your way there. Uh, A pastor decided one Sunday morning to reverse the order of service. I'm sure many of you love when those kind of things happen, but instead of having worship and announcements and offering first, he preached first. And when he got up to preach, he could look out and see that people were trying to get their offering ready, thinking that's what we normally do, right? Right? And there was a first-grade little girl who was sitting in the congregation with her mom that morning, and she leans over and whispers, and she says, Mom, doesn't he understand that we have not paid him to talk yet? (laughs) Creatures of habit we are. Over time, though, our perspective of things that are routine needs sharpening, doesn't it? Right, we get into the routine of things, and we do things because we've always done things, and, and we kind of lose sight of why we do what we do and what does that actually mean. And one of the areas where that is certainly the case is ministry. It is a term that is used often, especially in a church like this. As a matter of fact, if you're going to get discipled here, the fourth goal of discipleship is what? To see you established in ministry. So again, it's a, it's a very familiar and very much used term, if you would, and it's assumed that we all know what we mean when we say that. When we use the term ministry, you get something in your mind in terms of what we're referring to or talking about, but let's not assume. Let's make sure that we go to the Word of God and hear what the Word of God has to say about ministry so that we are properly informed. With that said, in your notes, look at Numbers 4 and verse 12. And what we read there is, and they shall take all the instruments of ministry, wherewith they minister in the sanctuary and put them in a cloth of blue and cover them with a covering of badger skins and shall put them on a bar. And so in the first 20 verses of Numbers chapter 4, what God is doing is God was giving instructions to the Kohathite Levites in terms of their ministry in the movement of the tabernacle. So that's what we're looking at here. But here in Numbers 4 verse 12 is where we encounter the first mention of the word ministry in the Bible. And you see that in Numbers 4 verse 12. And what we see there is very, very clarifying. In short, the word or the term ministry here, it simply means service. I think we can all get that. But here's where it gets very clarifying. Because in this first mention of ministry, here in Numbers 4.12, it specifically refers to ministry or the ministry of priests in the tabernacle or the temple. Contextually, that's the definition. According to 1 Peter 2, verse 9, from what we saw we are what? A royal priesthood. So in the church age dispensation, we are priests. We also understand from 1 Corinthians three sixteen that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are the temple of God. So putting all that together, this is important as we launch this morning. This is very, very critical. True Christians are temples of service. True Christians are temples of service. A true Christian will be a temple of service. From 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 6 through 11 we'll start today. We won't finish it. We're going to see a clear portrait of what this looks like, and we need to see that. Now, this is important because if Christians are temples of service, then we must know the difference. This is vital we must see the difference between ministry and ministers. This is critical. There is a difference between ministry and ministers. For some, ministry is what they do sometimes. So I do ministry sometimes, maybe... You're, you're scheduled to work in Kid Town or you're a part of our connections ministry or you're a part of the AV team or something like that. You're discipling someone or, or whatever. So ministry is something that for some, it's what they do, but for others, listen, being a minister is who they are. Do you see the difference? There is a difference. If ministry is something that you do, then what that means is is you will do what you can when you can. But when you are a minister, then God has your whole life. My life is yours. I don't have a life. So what that means, God, is you get to use me however, whenever, wherever you choose. Whether I'm scheduled or not scheduled. It doesn't matter where I show up. I'm a minister. There's never a situation, there's never a scenario, there's never a circumstance where I'm not a minister. So ministry is not something that I do. Being a minister is, that's who I am. So in this ministry portrait, we're going to see a portrait of a minister, not someone who simply does ministry. We begin in verse 6 of Chapter four, First Peter. This four, for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Now, if you were not with us, when we went through First Peter chapter three, and verse 19 in particular, the Bible gave us some very specific data on what Jesus Christ did during those three days that he was buried. And what we learn from 1 Peter 3, verse 19, is that he preached to the spirits that were in prison. And by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we could see very clearly that those spirits that he preached to referred to the fallen angels who had sexual relations with the daughters of men. And you get that data in Genesis chapter 6. So Jesus preached or declared his victory over them at Calvary because, as we understand, these spirits, these fallen angels are in that Tartarus part of hell that we discussed, where they are chained and they are reserved unto judgment. And so he had to go and deliver the updated news to them that they've been defeated once and for all. Okay, so if you didn't get that and you're saying, okay, I am drowning in what you're talking about, go online, you can listen, and hopefully that'll uh, fill in some blanks for you if you're not sure what we're saying. But we should notice, though, in 1 Peter 4, verse 6, it specifically says that he preached the gospel. And that's different from what you see in chapter 3 and verse 19. There, he preached to the spirits in prison. He wasn't preaching the gospel. Here we see in verse 6 that the gospel was preached to them that are dead. And so the audience here would be those who were awaiting the finished work of Christ. They were awaiting for Christ to atone for the sins of humanity. Remember what the Bible tells us. In Hebrews chapter 10 and in verse 4, we're told there that it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. So the blood sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament were simply a picture or a foreshadowing of the sacrifice, the Lamb of God that was to come and take away the sin of the world. So these were the believers in Abraham's bosom, or also known as paradise, who had to hear the gospel. These are those who Christ led with him when he ascended up on high, and we looked at that as well. Now, having said all that, the question that we got to answer this morning is, so what does that mean for us? What does verse 6 have to do with us? What does it have to do with this portrait of ministry? Jesus Christ came to minister, not to be ministered unto. Mark 10 45. And as a minister, he preached the gospel. He did. As God's minister, as God's servant, he preached the gospel. So here we go. In this ministry portrait, we see that ministers preach the gospel. They do. This is what you see. Listen, a telltale sign that our perspective is off on this term ministry and what it really means is that when you look at the portrait of our lives, when you look at the portrait of our ministry lives, what you see very clearly is that evangelism is absent. You don't see it. That is a telltale sign that uh, you and I are lacking in our understanding of what this term ministry is and what it really means. Listen, even if we've gone through cost of discipleship, discipleship one, foundations two and three, LFBI, and we're taking missions trips and doing all those wonderful things. In the ministry portrait of our lives, evangelism can still be missing. It can't. I remember reading a story about the great Charles Spurgeon, and uh, this young man was just, as many still are to this day, enamored with Charles Spurgeon. The great Charles Spurgeon and the wonderful teacher that he was and, and all of that. And this young man, being awestruck by him, wanted to learn and glean as much as he could. he he, he fantasized about becoming like Charles Spurgeon. And wanted to know how can he do that? You know what Spurgeon did? He gave him a great volume of gospel tracts and said, go and give every one of them out and then come back and we'll talk. Yeah. Would you consider the Apostle Paul's ministry portrait? Look at 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16. Paul said, for though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. Now fasten your seatbelt. You got to hear this. You got to get this. Hear it. Listen, look. For necessity is laid upon me. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me, If I preach not the gospel. So when Paul says, for necessity is laid upon me, what he's saying there is, I must preach the gospel. The option to not preach the gospel is not an option. Necessity is laid upon me. I have to do this. This is a burden. This is not something that I get to dismiss. I have to preach the gospel. Necessity is laid upon me, and whoa, if I don't, if I if I don't preach the gospel, Paul says, woe or grief is unto me. This is not a good thing. Brothers and sisters, I need you to hear this. I need to hear this. Listen, preaching the gospel is not an elective in the Christian life. It's not. It's not something you get to do or not get to do. Or No, it's not. It's, it's, a, core, it's a core, if you would. The Southern Baptist convention, convention, sorry, the SBC, they have an annual report called the Annual Church Profile. And in that report, one of the things that they track as a denomination is they track baptisms. And the reason for that is because baptisms are an indicator of what's happening with evangelism. And I've I've, I've given you some of that information in your notes, but in 1972, at their peak, as a denomination, they had 444,725 baptisms. 2001, 395,900, so 396,000. 2019, 235,748. 2020, 123,160, and then 2021, 154,701. Not an encouraging trend. And you can say, well, hey, look, they they, they did bounce back in 2021. They Yeah, but understand, in 2020, a lot of churches were not gathering, so guess what? Baptisms weren't happening in a lot of churches. So that can be misleading. Now, (laughs) hear me. It is not a coincidence that for years, the SBC has been divided politically, racially, and socially. So while they're slugging it out, and fighting, and arguing, and bickering over all those things, churches are dying. Churches are dying. This is what I'm saying. This is a bait that we don't get to take. Listen, the mission has always been clear. It is clear. It always will be clear. We must make disciples. When the dust is clearing on these last two years... It's clear to me that there are four groups of people that are left standing in the church. Democrats, Republicans, activists, and disciples indeed. We have no interest in making the first three. No. No, the mission is not that. No, the mission is to make disciples, and that starts with preaching the gospel. Tom Rayner, the founder and CEO of Church Answers, he wrote an excellent blog. I included it in your handout today, and we don't have time to read it today, but I would really encourage you to read it. On a church without evangelism, he does a phenomenal job of just painting a sober picture of what happens when churches don't evangelize. Not good. But would you look at this in your notes? The majority of churchgoers, 56%, say they pray for opportunities to share their faith, but in the last month, less than 10% had a conversation about the Lord with anyone. Not a good look for the ministry portrait there, is it? Not at all. I met with Todd this week. Uh, Todd and I Todd wanted to talk, and Todd's part of the missions team, and, and he shared with me an opportunity that, that we have as a fellowship coming up in October with our Friends of International Ministry, FOI. It's a, it's a cultural exchange night where these are international students. I mean, again, you and I are Americans, we live here. This is very typical for us, who we are and our culture and whatnot. But for students coming in, they're very intrigued about American culture. I mean, the simplest things like, where did you grow up, where did you go to school, what did you eat, things like that. I mean, just what does that look like here in America? They've heard about many things in America, but to actually be here and be around Americans, they want to learn. And so you'll have an opportunity, we'll have an opportunity to go there and just meet people. Uh, You hear about airport pickup, what a wonderful opportunity. For a, 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 a child, a young person coming across seas to America to go to school here, not knowing anyone, man, what if you signed up for that, you picked them up, you got them to where they're going to be staying, and then you left them with some information? Listen, once you settle down and, and once you got your feet under you, we'd love to have you enter our home for dinner. We'd love to get to know you, spend time with you. Love to adopt you on some level. What if, on this cultural exchange night, what if your small group went all in and said, We're going to go to that. And we're going to trust God to make two or three contacts. And then from there, we're going to have a special night where we invite those people to our small group and we're going to feed them and we're going to share more about our culture and our lives. And in the process, we're going to have somebody share their testimony about how they came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and now he's changed their lives. It's on my calendar. Uh, it's it's got to be intentional, guys. Again, where we have to get individually and corporately is we've got to get to the place where evangelism for us is as natural as discipleship and missions. We've got to get there. Okay, and our time remain. Look at verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Would you notice how straightforward Peter was regarding the return of Christ? But the end of all things is at hand. Believers in the early church were very matter-of-fact about this. They were living in genuine anticipation of the Lord returning. It, it, was, it was something that they truly expected. I'm afraid today it's off the radar of so many. And given the climate of First Peter, it's not something that they were only expecting. They were, it would have been a welcome sight uh, because they were suffering immensely. When you look at an accurate portrait of ministry, you observe ministers who, this is critical, know the hour. They know the hour. They do. They know what time it is. When you know the hour, what you know is that the end of all things is at hand. You know it. This means that we are on the cusp of the end of the church age as we know it. It could happen. It would not surprise this person who knows the hour. It would not surprise them to meet the Lord, to hear the trump and meet the Lord in the air. It would not surprise them if that happened right now because they know the hour they know the end of all things truly is at hand. It's not a fantasy, it's not a pipe dream, it's not, oh yeah, that's just, that's just preachers running their mouths, no, 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 it's, I, I expect to meet the Lord, if it doesn't happen right now, by the end of class. And if it doesn't happen then, by the end of the worship set in the, main, in the, in the second service, right? We're right there. At His first coming, Jesus was very cognizant of his hour. He talked about it often. John 12, 23, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. 17, verse 1 of John. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. Jesus' hour referred to the reason for why he came. And he never lost sight of that. Why did he come? He did not come to be ministered unto, but he came to minister and to give his life a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. He came to serve and die. And he never got off point, never needed a reminder. He was always cognizant of his hour. When it comes to the current hour of our day, please, please, I I beg you, when it comes to this hour, When it comes to the times that we find ourselves in right now, I beg you, I implore you to hear this. The Bible is not vague or ambiguous whatsoever about these times. Crystal clear. How about 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1? This know also, that in the last days, perilous times shall come. Perilous times, these are times that are dangerous. Hazardous, full of risk. These are the times. Verse 2 For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. When you look at that phrase, without natural without natural affection, and you compare it with what we encounter in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 28, it is very clear. Without natural affection refers to any and all forms of sexual perversion that is not after the natural order of God. So that's homosexuality, that's transgenderism, and everything else that is defiled and distorted from what God intended. And the Bible is unapologetic about that. And so am I. Truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. This word incontinent, it means without self-control. The debate regarding guns and gun control is raging, and it will rage. Uh, We're all, we should be, moved and unsettled about people being gunned down, slaughtered, murdered in the most common situations, kids sitting in a classroom, people going to a parade on the 4th of July, and we can go on. It's awful. It's gut-wrenching. It's gripping. But please, you can pass as many bills as you want, and you can implement as many laws as you want, but I'm sorry. That will not fully address the problem. Because the issue is this without a walk with Jesus Christ, people are incontinent. That is, they have no self restraint, no self control. Only Christ can solve that. Only Christ. Whether it be lust, or guns, countless people, as we said a few weeks ago, countless people have no restraint on their thought life. There are no lines, there are no boundaries. So whatever thought comes in, no matter how dark and disturbed and devious and diabolical it might be, I put the welcome mat out. It can move in. The only true defense against that is salvation and a walk with Jesus Christ. Despisers of those that are good. Remember what we saw in verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 4? Uh, Christians were viewed as strange and evil was being spoken about them. Why? Uh, Because they weren't running to the same excess of riot. No, they desired to be holy because He is holy, as we saw in chapter 1. Do you understand, if you're going to walk with God today according to this word, and you're going to align your life with this book you will be despised. The world is not going to love you, accept you, applaud you, receive you. You will be despised. We are here in a time, in our world, in our day, where evil is good and good is evil. And the Bible talks about this. I mean, this is where we are. These are the times. Verse 4, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. There's a word for that. It's called hedonism. And in hedonism, the bottom line is whatever makes me feel good is what I do regardless of what God says. Period. Period. That's hedonism. Is that not the hour in which we live? I mean, we live in an hour, listen, where, I mean, people are are sinning boldly before God. Daring Him to do anything. Again, when you... Listen, this is what I'm saying. We talked a couple weeks ago about fencing your mind. Listen, please... When you don't have restraints on your life, you know what that means? That means anything is on the table. Anything. That means any option is out there. There there are lines that I will cross. Why? Because I have no fear of God. You know what the fear of the Lord is? It's to hate evil. But if you don't fear God, not only will you not hate evil, listen, you will welcome it because you have no restraints. Anything goes. This is the hour of our day. And listen, this is interesting. In this hour, in this day, it's not that there's an absence of religion. Religion is not absent. Look at verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. No, religion is alive and well. (laughs) Uh, People in these dark times, people have a form of godliness. There are people today who call themselves Christians, but would you consider some of this information in your notes? 50% of Christians say they are deeply committed to practicing their faith, but only 11% have a biblical worldview. You know what a biblical worldview is? It means that you view the world and you see everything through the lens of Scripture. That scripture informs, it governs, it dictates your view of all things. Only half of America's pastors, 51%, have a biblical worldview. Pastors. Less than 10% of sermons preached in evangelical churches even mention hell, sin, salvation, or heaven. 54% 54% of U.S. churches allow openly gay or lesbian couples to hold full-fledged memberships, an increase of 70% compared to just 12 years ago. You can have God any way you want. You can call yourself a Christian, and you can think, say, and do anything you want to do and that's okay. We read about that in the book of Judges, don't we? Where at that time there was no king in Israel, and every man did what? Right in his own eyes. We're here. That is having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Verse 7 gives us a very clear visual of what it looks like when someone knows the hour. Look at the rest of it as we wrap up. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. Biblical sobriety. When you know the hour, you will be biblically sober. Because you know the hour. In this book, we're Christians, true Christians, we're suffering greatly. In this small epistle, Peter gave a lot of attention to this issue of being sober. Chapter 1, verse 13, he said, be sober. Here in chapter 4, verse 7, be sober. And man, are we going to look at this in chapter 5 and verse 8, where once again he says, be sober. And if there was anyone who understood the importance of being sober, it was Peter, because there was an episode in his life, there were a few, but there was one in particular that was absolutely devastating, that led to him denying the Lord three times. And why did he do that? Because he wasn't sober. Please, Christians who know the hour live under the influence of the Word of God. When you know the hour, your life will be governed You will walk under the influence of the word. That is controlling your thought life, that is controlling your speech, and that is controlling your actions. You're under the influence of the word. Here's a sobering thought. People who do not know the hour, listen, do not even realize that we are living in perilous times. They don't even realize it. They don't know the hour. Man, yeah, you know, things happen, but overall, life's good, right? I'll tell you what, how about you look at that from God's perspective? And if you look at it from God, but to do that, you got to be sober. you got to be under the influence of his word, and when you are, oh, you really see what's going on. And you see what's really happening in the world here's the other effect prayerful sobriety this word watch here in verse 7 it's also translated as sober very interesting when you know the hour you will watch unto prayer what does that mean that means that you are watching your life You are watching for the Lord's return. You are watching what's happening in the world. You're watching all of that in and through prayer. You are. You're not worrying about these perilous times or you're not debating with people about these perilous times. You're watching all of this stuff unto prayer. Listen. Prayerlessness is an admission of ignorance of the reality of the hour. If you really knew the hour, if you really knew the times that we're in, you most certainly would be watching unto prayer. The believers that Peter was writing to, they knew the hour, and I can guarantee you they would have been watching unto prayer. How many got slaughtered today? How many got burned alive today? How many got sewed up in animal skins today? How many parents watch their children murdered? Today, we better pray. We got to pray. Why should we pray without ceasing in our personal lives? Why do we emphasize prayer on Tuesday nights? Why do we emphasize prayer here in Life Fellowship on Friday mornings at 6 30? Why do we emphasize prayer in our small groups? Why do we do that? Why should we give ourselves so that's very, very simple? Because the hour of the day says we must. It says we must. The hour of the day says we must watch unto prayer. Father, I thank you. We thank you for your word. It is always good. It is always perfect and right. I do pray that, Lord, we would run with what we've heard from you today, that we work it out in our lives to your glory, the salvation of the lost. In Jesus' name, amen.